We'll let that prayer stand for our reading of the Word of God. And now um, let's attend to Luke chapter 2, this great story of uh, Jesus and Mary and Joseph and then Simeon. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms, and he blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you are prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. After his and, excuse me, and his father and his mother marveled at what he had said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. And so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived her, with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Amen. So uh, I want you to think for a moment um, about what your formula for fulfillment is. And what I mean by that is what things would you need to fall in place, say this year or in the next few years or in the next few months, for you to sit in your home or to walk along the way and know that things were good. Know that the people that you loved and you're, were okay and that the dreams that you had were secure. And also not just your dreams, um, but the things that you need or at least the things that you want. What is your formula for fulfillment? We all have them. We have a list of things that we need really need, and a list of things we want, and a list of dreams that we have, and we measure our rest and fulfillment according to those things. That's why I was so uh, eager to pray about them in the pastoral prayer. It's good to have those things. God made you to need things. God made you so that after you eat, you'll need to eat again in another few hours, because life is outside of us. That's good. He told you to pour out your heart 
He told you to do all those things. But I, now I want to ask you a question, if you have that in your mind. hope you can list those out either on paper or you know, maybe you've already got them somewhere in a prayer book. I want to ask you if you think that um, Simeon and Anna had things like that. Or were they just sort of uh, three-dimensional flannel graph Bible characters that don't really exist except on the pages of Scripture? Or do you think they were actual people with wounds and dreams and aspirations and needs and jobs? Anna seems to have lived in the temple, but she devoted herself to a vocation. Well, of course they had those things. But what's remarkable about this scene is that nothing like that is mentioned. Simeon makes this incredible song and Anna bursts forth in declaring the glory of God and the person and work of this little baby and there's not a single thing on Mike's list and maybe on your list that's present with this little tiny child that they see. And that's the first clue for us that the pathway to fulfillment is different then we've trained our hearts to think that it is. The path that leads to, oh, I'm good now. I can rest tonight. I can wake in peace in the morning. That pathway is much different than Mike's formula for what I need to get there. It begins with the presentation of the Christ. Then we can look at their fulfillment. These are the three things that we'll do to explore that. And then we'll look at something that really is the um, takeaway of this message. I remember now I've got to be here. The takeaway of this message is that they started to see Jesus long before they saw him. And so let's take a look at that. Let's take a look at the presentation. I want us to see what's really happening here is much more significant. It's subtly expressed um, but it's much more significant than meets the eyes at first. They came um, time for the purification according to the law of Moses. Now Mary, according to the law of Moses, would have spent 40 days away from the temple after she gave birth to a child, and she was coming back for that. And th listen to this language. They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Now that's significant because there's a, there's a narrative change and a, and a geographic pivot in the story of the nativity that happens right here in Luke. Everything else has been about the, the Son of God coming down. The Holy Spirit will descend and, and rest upon you. That uh, then the child will be born, will be called Son of the Most High God. The whole uh, movement of the first chapters of the nativity is all about God coming from above to below. And He's found then in the hills outside or in the city of Bethlehem and the news comes out in the countryside. There's a downward momentum that brings the Son of God here on earth to live with the rest of us. And so that's where we are until this moment. Now they're back um, in Nazareth. They've gone back to Nazareth and now they're going to go up to Jerusalem. So they've, the momentum is downward, but now it's going to go up to Jerusalem. Now, no matter what elevation you are, you always go up to Jerusalem because you have to go down and then it's on a hill. And so you find your way up there. 
The significance, though, is that uh, now Jesus, who's become for us a savior and in, in the fullness of our humanity is taken on, he's doing as a child through the stewardship of his parents, he's doing what every human being needs to do eventually, and that's go up to Jerusalem and meet with God. In this case, the physical Jerusalem, the church is also called that in the New Testament. So he's, he's starting his journey back to be with God. This is a significant pivot. What's happening here is um, that he's brought, though, for a specific reason. We could say this, he's brought up to Jerusalem to begin the liturgy of his life. He's going to come up, and this is really the first picture of Christ as our offering. How do we know that? Because um, of this language about the law and the custom of the law, and the male who opens the womb is holy to the Lord, and then the offering that's made. All those things tell us something significant about Jesus, that he has come as an offering to God. Now, let's go back into the scriptures, all the way back to the book of, of Exodus. The language here um, is about the Passover, and the Passover um, struck down the firstborn of all of Egypt's uh, families and, and animals, um, but there was no curse put on Israel, but God did do a thing with Israel. He said, now you have to dedicate every firstborn child to me through this course of sacrifice and offering and presentation. God was saying to us, one day the firstborn of Israel will come to my temple and he will be sacrificed. And that's the presentation that's going on here. For millions, perhaps, millions and surely, of firstborns were taken to the tabernacle and then to Solomon's temple and then now here to Herod's temple and they were offered, lambs were offered, um, more humble sacrifices like this were offered. By the way, Mary and Joseph might have been very poor. They also might have just been middle class. This was sort of a, a middle class offering. You had to be really wealthy if you were going to offer a lamb. But the point is, millions of babies had been dedicated this way. But what we're going to find out in the rest of the story is something significant, isn't it? That this was the one. This was the, the true firstborn. He was not going to be offered by sacrifice of bulls or goats or pigeons or doves. He was truly going to be offered. And that's what's happening. It's that presentation, that fulfillment that somehow we're going to see that they were able to see. But it's accented by what happens even after this, the centrality of the Passover. They saw the firstborn son and they saw the beginning of the fulfillment of the Passover promise. That's what they're seeing. And I want us to see what it did for them in a minute when we talk about their response, but also how they train their eyes for that. What happens next is of significance always when you're looking at a passage, what happened before, what happens next. What happens immediately next is this eruption of song and praise that happens in the temple. But the next passage about that is this um, peculiar, really wonderful story of, of uh, parents leaving with the crowd and not noticing that their son was not with them for three days. So they're, you know, Joseph and Mary are not going to do parenting seminars at this church. They just left. I would say this, though. Um, we did leave our youngest child 
at church one Sunday evening after the service. So I shouldn't give them too much trouble. He still goes to church, thankfully. But um, they go back. Do you remember what, what Jesus said to them when they went back? They finally found him in the temple. He said, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? So he places, they were at the Passover. He places himself. He was saying, and Luke's telling us, oh, I'm the one. He's saying, no, I'm the, you know, the, the infant that you dedicated like all those other firstborn. Well, here I am. I'm in my father's house. I am his firstborn. And where, of course, does the whole course, if you're not familiar with the gospel of Luke, that's great. I'm, I'm glad that you're here. But what's the course? The course of the whole story, Jesus ends up fulfilling the Passover at the Lord's Supper, which we'll celebrate in a moment. So this is what they're seeing. This is what's before them. What's so remarkable is that they're seeing the smallest version of the Savior possible, 40 days old. This infant doesn't even understand those are his hands as a human. And they see all this, but I want to say for a moment what they don't see so that we can understand the significance of how they responded. They didn't see the angel choir. They didn't hear the Sermon on the Mount. They didn't hear him say on the resurrection and the life. They didn't hear him say, come forth, Lazarus, and see the man come out of the grave. They didn't see him crucified. They didn't see him resurrected. They didn't hear him say, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. They didn't see the blind given sight, the paralytic able to walk, the mute to speak, the leper to be clean. They didn't see any of that. And yet they were satisfied. It's remarkable. You and I have seen more of Jesus than Simeon and Anna did. In fact, Paul says in Galatians, you foolish Galatians, don't you know that Jesus Christ was portrayed before your very eyes as crucified? Preaching is... is Got a, a visual element to it. It presents the reality of Christ to you. And we have seen much more. We have seen much more. Yet they were satisfied. A minister in New York, John Thomas, um, said something once. I was listening to him speak at a conference or something. And uh, it just humbled me. He said, most Christians' prayers could be answered by a reasonably wealthy person. My I wish I could say, yeah, my people pray just like that, but it's me too. So let's take a look at their satisfaction before we see how they trained themselves to see. I want us to see that Simeon's satisfaction was absolute and permanent, but it was also very realistic. The first thing he did was, um, was bless God. He, he first thanked God as the source of all that's good. A bless God. And then he said to God, now I'm good. Now you're letting your servants depart in peace. He means now I can die and know, fill in the blank, what language you want to use? My life wasn't wasted. I, I won the life game, you know. I fulfilled all my dreams. Uh, my, my fears were proven uh, unfounded. 
Uh, my wounds were all healed. What is it that you want? That's what Simeon's saying. He has this absolute irrevocable peace by seeing this baby. But, but let's see what he saw. This is what brought him peace. And we'll talk about this again in a moment. Um, I have seen your salvation prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation and for glory to your people. His consolation, remember what? He was waiting for the what? He was waiting for the consolation of his job, of his family, of what? Of his dreams, of Israel. He wanted God to redeem the world, and he knew if God redeemed the world, his life would be swept right up into it and everything would be just fine. And that's going to be part of, of the gift that they give us. There's nothing here about his dreams or his wounds, really nothing about his own story, except we learned something of his character. So he's got this moment of, of peace, and he understands that it means everything, that he can now, he has an anchor moment that can ultimately, although it'll take time in his heart like the rest of us, ultimately it will trump all of our trials and struggles. You know, all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. That's not a band-aid. That's more true than my sorrows. That's more true than my fears. That's more true than the bitterness I have for the things that didn't go the way I wanted them to or the wounds I have. That's more true. The consolation of Israel, assured by Christ, is more true than all the things on your list that you think you need to have. But, but it's not over yet. Then, he, then he, he ruins the moment, essentially. He ruins it. He's got this beautiful moment. Remember, he's already taken the baby from Mary and Joseph, which is not advised. And, he, and, then, he, and then he looks at them and he blesses them and then he says, um, in, in a fashion, um, don't assume that redemption will end your sorrow and grief or the conflict in the world. See, we're going to see that Anna, looks, Anna looked back and her, her past wounds didn't eclipse her, her joy. And Simeon is looking forward. He's saying, he's saying, look, the world is still going to be full, uh, appointed for the rising and fall of many. There will be conflict, a sign that is opposed, that people will not receive him. A sword, Mary, is going to pierce your heart. You and everyone who loves Jesus will be brokenhearted by their treatment of him. And so Simeon's joy is profoundly realistic, which is the kind of joy and satisfaction and peace that I need. I need a joy that's real, but doesn't convince me that, all right, when everything's going to be okay, means my life's going to go the way that I want it to. My job's going to go. My, my homeland, my country's going to go, or anything like that. He gets right to it. And so that's, that's Simeon's satisfaction. Deep, profound, enduring, because he sees beyond himself, and that's enough God has worked redemption, and that is the word he needs in order to go to sleep with struggling kids whose faith is struggling or jobs are struggling, with your own struggling health, with your dislocated marriage, with you know, your uncertain job future. You, you need to go to bed with something that's bigger than all that. And we all need to stop saying, I'll know God loves me when, here's my list. 
That's not how it works. I know God loves me because he gave me his one and only son. So let's take a, a look at Anna too. We have fewer um, expressions of her story, but we'll, um, of her words, but we, we get enough here to know something significant, a number of things. Uh, the first thing is that she uh, confesses, she agreed, she gave thanks is the way it's translated. But the word has is, is got more going on than just that. It's, it means to uh, affirm alongside and to agree with someone. And so she's like, she heard all this because she's at the temple all the time. And she just jumps up in, in, in her role as this uh, prophet to Israel. And she jumps up and she agrees and give thanks. And then what does she start to do except then tell the people? So you start to see this cycle. Uh, Simeon, first of all, told God thanks. Then he told Mary something and Joseph something of exhortation. And then now the, the church is telling itself things about the reality of what's happening. And what is she excited about again? Is it her own list? Is it the consolation of her own wound as a, as a childless uh, widow? No, it's about the redemption of what? of Jerusalem again. She gives thanks. She gives thanks. These two twin souls, these two twin souls. And so we have this um, need now to look at what was it about those souls um, that, that put them in this place? And we have hints in this passage about it. But, but what I want us to see for a moment, if I can, um, I became a Christian when someone asked me if I wanted to receive Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. And that's fine language. Paul says things like that. I live my life for the one who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's the thing Paul says. That's fine. But what, what strikes me is that that's maybe a good place to start. But if, if you never get past that, you'll never get to where Simeon and Anna were. Because they do not see their personal Lord and Savior. Who do they see? They see the redeemer of the world, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. They see someone whose agenda eclipses and transcends and moves beyond their story. And Simeon was able by that one vision to say, look, as much turmoil and disruption and um, conflict that, that will come, I can still hold on to that. But let's talk about Anna. Anna was married for seven years, never had a child with a man we of course would presume she loved. What did she do with that sorrow in the past? Did it embitter her? Did it separate her from God? No, it compelled her to God. See, I want us to see about preparation. First thing I want us to know is that they saw Jesus from deep within themselves. What I mean by that is, is that they saw through souls that were forged in faith. Christianity is not magic. Faith is not an app. The fact of the matter is, Paul tells us clearly that we reap what we sow. The things that we cultivate in ourselves will change how we respond to God and the world around us. And these are the things that we learn about Simeon, about how he fostered his soul and trained himself to see clearly he was righteous and devout and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, now when um, good uh, 
Presbyterian folks uh, hear about people's righteousness, what do we immediately think of? Well, we think of the imputed righteousness of Christ because no one is righteous, not even one. And if you're exploring Christianity, at the very center of it is that Jesus was righteous, that you couldn't be, and he died and traded his righteousness for your sin. And that's called the imputed righteousness of Christ. Okay, that's not what this is talking about. Simeon responded to the promise of that with faith and lived out the stipulations that God gave us to live. See, the the same faith that believes Jesus died for my sin believes the word of God that Jesus gave us. The same faith that believes my sin is covered also believes that I can respond to that by maybe not having so much sin to be covered. That the pursuit of the law that was so important to Jesus that he kept it and died for it might then become part of my life. This sort of inner covenantal, I might call it responsive lowercase r righteousness where my faith works its way out in consistency for the struggling and stumbling uh, pursuit of obedience. And then he's also devout, which means hold on tenaciously. He's got passion and pursuits. This is how you train your soul. You know, Christianity is uh, work. When it's done well, it's, it can be kind of uh, difficult. It's not difficult. Well, it can be difficult to believe your sins are forgiven, but you can always fall on your knees and, and get that. And I hope you do. But, but what's difficult about it is, is dying to yourself, taking up your cross, realizing that Jesus said, um, if you love me, what did he say? You will keep my commandments. That's, that's before he saw the fullness of Christ. That's what made this man devout and righteous, his passion. And then, of course, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Anna... Anna did something remarkable that's hard to do for me personally and also in my pastor, it's hard to do. She suffered. She suffered a deep, profound loss. As a, as a widow with no children, um, she had ample opportunity to run to the security of the world or be bitter about why God, who made her to have a marriage, made her body to have children, made her to want companionship, um, decided that she couldn't have it. But that's not what she did. This vision of Anna, this beautiful woman, is that all those sorrows, whatever came in her life, propelled her into the presence of God day and night. See how these two, see how these two lived lives that helped them see the whole consolation of Israel, the salvation of the Lord, and the redemption of Jerusalem in a 40-day-old baby? You know, um, being of my demographic, my wife and I, we enjoy the Antiques Roadshow. Because we, we're like, we want to think that's, that even though we're old, there might still be some value in us. So, but... but but you see these folks, you know, they have the most obscure things, like the, the people that know everything about dolls or furniture or sporting events or, of course, art and, um, you know, all, all these things. How do they know so much except that they gave their life over to this purpose 
I'm not saying in a bad way, it's part, of, it's part of what you probably do to some degree with your vocation. You know, you need to know about it. That's how they saw this. They trained themselves. That's how the faith works. The faith works by you and I training our hearts in the light of Christ to see what's really important and what we really need. See, they saw from within themselves. And if you train your soul to see from the perspective of a soul shaped by obedience to, devotion to, and proximity to the presence of God, um, not for a week, not for a month, probably not for a year, but for the next rest of your life, your eyes will be trained to see beyond yourself. And that's what they did. We've seen already. They saw the consolation of Israel. They saw the light of the Gentiles. They saw the uh, redemption of Jerusalem. They saw the people of God, the creation of God, and the throne of God. And that was enough for them. Going back to your list, going back to that list you made this morning, I pray God will grant you those things. And I remind you that God said, by all things, with petitions and prayers, make all your requests known to God. He said, pour out your heart to him. He said, ask and seek. I, I pray that those things will be given to you unless you think you can't be fulfilled until you have them. Because that's just not true. It's not true. You could be fulfilled or move towards that even now. If you would just see that because Christ came, because he lived, because he died, and because he lives again, no matter what comes to you or doesn't come to you, you'll be just fine. You will have no regrets. You will suffer no loss that is not redeemed. You just can't. You just won't. And that's the fulfillment that you've been given. That's the promise that you have. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you. Ask, Lord, it's so hard to see rightly in this world. So let us begin um, with obedience and affections of devotion, resilience when we're wounded, willful faith that keeps us close to you day and night. And let us trust that as we um, look to you, we will see you more clearly and that we will know the truth of those words that that whatever you grant us or whatever you withhold from us, whatever sorrows or joys come our way, whatever we think we need to have peace, we will be reminded that you who gave your one and only son for us will not withhold any good thing. Lord God, so we are well cared for and we see the rest by faith, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.